Socrates was, first of all, a citizen of the city-state of Athens, which, as I mentioned before, was a democracy, the first experiment with democracy. The Athenians were extremely proud of their form of government. And the Athenians were not only proud of their democracy, but of their high level of culture, their sculpture and architecture, which still, even in its ruined state, are magnificent enough for us to gape at. Their playwrights, Sophocles, Aeschylus, Euripides, they were proud of their rhetorical skills and their tolerance for free speech, which they call parisia. And they were proud, at least for a while, they were proud of their very eccentric philosopher, Socrates, who was the very embodiment of free speech. Eventually, their pride in Socrates and his habit of questioning all their assumptions wore thin, especially after their defeat to the Spartans in the decades-long Peloponnesian War. For a while, they were occupied with a garrison force of Spartan soldiers camped out on the magnificent Acropolis and an oligarchy composed of Athenians who had always been critical of democracy, one of whom, Critias, was Plato's own uncle running the government. Socrates' habit of questioning everything, including Athenian exceptionalism, was not so tolerable at this point when they weren't riding so high. Socrates' obsession was with the nature of arete, human excellence. He challenged the Athenian presumption that just to be an Athenian, to be a member of this extraordinary society, you had pretty much done what you needed to do. You were yourself extraordinary. Socrates so changed the meaning of the word arete that it gradually came to take on the meaning of virtue. It wasn't just any kind of excellence that would win you chaos recognition, but human virtue. It was one thing to have Athenian exceptionalism challenged when the Athenians were riding high, when they had built up a powerful empire, but it was an altogether different thing after their defeat. In 399 BCE, soon after the democracy was reestablished, Socrates was accused of the capital crime of impiety and of corrupting the youth. He was convicted, imprisoned, and put to death by way of hemlock, a deadly poison. It was our first philosophical martyr. We have no writings of Socrates. Writing wasn't his thing. It wasn't the way he practiced philosophy. Instead, he spent his days wandering around Athens, buttonholing others, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, even slaves, and engaging all and sundry in intense conversations. Typically, he'd ask for a definition for some ethical universal. What's courage, he might ask? What's piety? Don't give me examples, he would tell them, since without a definition of the universal telling me what is essential to it, I have no standard by which I can judge whether these are genuine examples. Other fellow would begin by answering confidently enough, but under Socrates' forceful focus interrogation, the confidence would gradually crumble. Often the conversation would end in aporia, 
which is the Greek word which means no exit, an impasse, a dead end. Unlike the pre-Socratics, Socrates didn't concern himself with questions about the nature of reality. He was exclusively interested in the last of the orienting questions, how ought we to live our lives? We know about Socrates' conversations because other Athenians wrote about them. And in particular, one of the most famous of all Greek philosophers, Plato, the founder of the academy, chose as his form of writing Socratic dialogues. These dialogues feature Socrates going about his daily business of putting question after careful question to others. And we assume that the behavior of Plato's character, Socrates, bears resemblance to the behavior of the actual historical Socrates. Plato was a really great philosopher with a range of philosophical interests that far exceeded Socrates' exclusive focus on the third of the orienting questions, that normative questions, how ought we to live. Plato was just as interested in the questions of where are we and what are we as in the normative question of how ought we to live our lives. And yet, throughout his long philosophical development, he lived to about 81, Plato continued to write Socratic dialogues, employing Socrates' techniques of analyzing concepts, probing intuitions, searching for internal contradictions. I think one thing we know about Plato is he truly loved Socrates. Even though Socrates left no writing, he is considered so important that, as we saw in the last chapter, we dub all philosophers who came before him pre-Socratics. So something pretty important happened with Socrates. It was the method that Socrates employed that gives him his outsized status in the history of philosophy. It's a method that remains definitive of philosophy, relying on conceptual analysis and following out the implications of various intuitions, seeing if they lead to contradictions with other intuitions. Socrates had noticed that most of us in his day, and I think he would judge in our day, are very good at holding inconsistent beliefs simultaneously, which means that some of our beliefs have to be false. After all, contradictions can't be true. Our internal inconsistencies, which we manage to sustain by way of compartmentalization, don't bother most of us as they ought to, not only because in general it's not good to believe falsely, but also because a lot of our internal contradictions are generated from our over-strenuous egos, which prevent us from seeing ourselves with the proper, appropriate perspectives. And because everybody tends to do this in regard to themselves, this leads to difficulties between us. And we rear up in anger and belligerence when our egotistically generated worldviews collide with each other. Socrates believed that our cohabiting so happily with our internal contradictions causes all manner 
of mischief among us. And his method of asking the right kinds of questions in order to expose our unfounded presumptions and internal contradictions, forcing us to analyze precisely what we're asserting and what the consequences of our intuitions are, is what we mean by the Socratic method. It is an extremely valuable method and one which ought to be more widely employed. It's far easier to employ it in regard to others' beliefs than our own. But Socrates' method is most useful and emphatic. It can be transformative when it is internalized. So when I teach my students, I always try to employ the Socratic method, not trying to force my view of things onto them, but rather examining together back and forth their own views and teaching them how they can internalize uh, this method that Socrates taught us so many centuries ago of applying self-critical reasoning uh, to our own beliefs and seeing where they lead.